Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I'm so bummed. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow. Now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's probably going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with you. Should have used tick pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick pick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, tick pick. I thought you said tick pick. No hidden fees. Download today. Today is January 3rd, 2020. It's 2020. It's a new decade, I think. Is 2020 considered the start to the new decade? Not according to some people on the internet. Whatever. It's a new decade. It's also a new episode of The O Show presented by Belly Up Sports. We're talking Bombshell Review, the movie about Roger Ailes' sexual harassment trial over at Fox News a few years back. We'll also briefly preview NFL Wild Card Weekend because for the first time in 11 years, that's right, 11 years, for the first time, in 11 years, Tom Brady is playing football in the first week of January. That's right, but he gets to play the Titans, so it should be a wrap. I was actually more concerned about the other matchup coming out of the AFC, Bills-Texans. It's interesting. It's going to be close. It's Seahawks-Eagles and Saints-Vikings on the NFC side. Those matchups are a bit harder to predict. Special shout-out to Jerry Jones for making a conscious decision last night, parting ways with Jason Garrett. Finally, congrats, Jerry. It's also Friday, so we're going to have the Flashback Friday interview of the week, and it's going to be Philadelphia Phillies and CBS Sports broadcaster Tom McCarthy, another great opportunity for any aspiring sportscasters out there to gain some uh, pretty good knowledge from one of the more experienced sportscasters in the game today. All of this and more on episode 136, presented by Belly Up Sports. Remember to use the promo code OSHO10, that's capital O-S-H-O-W-10, for $10 off your next order using TickPick.com. You should have used TickPick. Use the promo code OSHO20, that's capital O-S-H-O-W-20, for $20 off your next order at Mecca Nutrition. If you're into banging weights, eating steaks, and sleeping eights, it's Bombshell Review, Tom McCarthy, and NFL Wild Card Weekend. Let's go. On May 18th, 2018, me and my brother launched the very first Osho podcast ever, and the first thing we said in our intro was that we were never going to talk politics. We even stopped Hootie's uh, music halfway through. We cut off Hootie. Nobody cuts off Hootie. We cut off Hootie to say that we were never going to talk about politics on the show until now. Bombshell review. I mean, it's a movie. I like doing movie reviews. I got to talk about politics. This movie was about politics. And I suspect that I won't be alone in saying that I went into Bombshell and went into the theater to watch Bombshell with a touch of skepticism. I mean, the movie is a lively docudrama, not a snark fest, but kind of like a meticulous, close to the bone, if you will, chronicle about how Megyn Kelly who's played by uh, Charlize Theron, one of uh, the star anchors of Fox News. And then there's Gretchen Carlson, who's played by Nicole Kidman, the host of Fox and Friends, brought down by uh, the right-wing, I guess, Mongol titan, you could say, Roger Ailes, by revealing the, the system of sexual harassment that he used to run in his network. Again, this guy was the CEO of Fox Sports at the time. And in the two years since The Reckoning, that brought on by the Harvey Weinstein scandal, we've been waiting for, I guess you can say, more drama that dramatizes the fear and loathing and stark human cost of sexual harassment. I mean, the wait is over. Bombshell, which is directed by Jay Roach, who also directed Game Change that came out a few years ago from a script by Charles Randolph. He, he was in the big short. Uh, is in the movie. So, yeah, watching it, I knew that I'd have to uh, view two of the women who became celebrities at Fox News. Uh, this was, of course, Carlson and Megyn Kelly uh, at Fox News, a network built on the toxic DNA of corruption and lies. I mean, we all know that. Would the film acknowledge their complicity in that, what happened, what actually went down with Roger Ailes, 
or would it be a Hollywood whitewash, so to speak? Neither one of them is still at Fox News. Both of them left the network, but the movie, in fact, acknowledges their complicity. As it opens uh, in theaters, the 2016 presidential campaign is in full swing, and Megyn Kelly, before the Republican debate hosted by Fox News, is preparing to lob a grenade, so to speak, at then-Republican candidate Donald Trump in the form of a question about his treatment of women, at least at the time. There's backstage drama as Megan on the day of the debate gets so sick that she throws up repeatedly. That's how nervous she was. I mean, is it nerves or were was her coffee poisoned? We don't know. That was kind of the thing. That was kind of the gist of the movie. It turns out to be the latter, which suggests that taking on the right-wing power structure is a, a very dangerous thing to do. And at the debate, Megan Kelly calls Trump out on his uh, treatment towards women and generates headlines. And Trump's response, making vile remarks about her menstrual cycle – creates even bigger headlines. It becomes one of the first of Donald Trump's sick joke Twitter memes. Will he get away with this? No way. OMG, he's not just going to get away with it. It's boosting his popularity. That was the quote. And the film, I guess you could say, invites us to see the movie. For It took for Megyn Kelly to face Trump down and to deal with the consequences of his hideous remarks. But after the situation settled for a little bit, she agreed to do a one-on-one interview with Trump, and when she's in a Fox editing suite watching the tape, her own husband, Doug, played by Mark Duplass, he plays Pete in the league, the fantasy football league that used to be on Netflix, not anymore. Great show, but Mark Duplass plays Doug, Megan Kelly's husband. Uh, he calls her on the carpet, and for going too easy on Trump, letting him off the hook, so to speak, leads to a big fight between uh, Megyn Kelly and Doug. Uh, the scene stings a little bit because it isn't just that Megyn Kelly threw Trump a softball, so to speak. She aided and abetted the, the selling of his message. Bombshell is a scalding and powerful movie about what selling in America has become. The film is about selling sex, selling a candidate, selling yourself, selling the truth. And about how Fox News uh, and all those things came together. At first, there's a, a stark contrast between Megyn Kelly's public image and the dark secret about harassment that she's carrying around. I mean, a former lawyer who's known uh, for her big mouth, she has a fast wit and slicing intelligence. I mean, Theron wearing prosthetics and alter, altering her features with convincing uh Convincing looks makes her tough and likable. I mean, a straight shooter with the hardness of a diamond, you could say. And her decision to confront Donald Trump on the issue of women arrives at the, the moment when Fox is about to get Trump. Because, again, him and Roger Ailes had a good relationship. He always came on Fox for Roger Ailes because the network is still weighing his influence. And Ailes, played by John Lithgow, very great actor. You could catch him in multiple. He, he played Barney Stinson's dad in How I Met Your Mother. He, yeah, that was right. Neil Patrick Harris's dad in How I Met Your Mother. He played Will Ferrell's dad in Daddy's Home 2. But this was a great, uh, great movie for John Lithgow as well, playing Roger Ailes, nailed it to a T. Uh, a right-wing politician is also a showbiz junkie with a genius for what it takes to heat up the, the cool medium of television. He, he gets Trump and he loves him, but if Ailes is the boss, he's not the king. That, that's Rupert Murdoch, played by Malcolm McDowell, and then the corporate baron who at that point is still skeptical uh, of Trump. And Megyn Kelly, however, is the rocking boat. She's poking holes in the candidate by embracing a feminist agenda, and in doing so, she's tweaking the secret weapon of Fox News and that it's selling a kind of pornography, I guess you could say, a fusion of leering and vengeance. It's, it's right-wing red meat decorated with blow-dried blonde cheesecake. And Kelly understands this because she herself was harassed by Roger Ailes, the, the, the pasha who micromanages the news feed, even as he treats the office itself as his brothel, you could say. The, the film introduces a third figure in the newsroom, an ambitious young Christian millennial named Kayla Possipil, who's played by Margot Robbie. She's a, a composite character, you could say, who's smart enough to go where the power is. 
She gets a job working on Bill O'Reilly's team and learns the ropes by falling into bed with Jess, who's played by Saturday Night Live's Kate McKinnon, who's uh, a closeted lesbian, I guess. That's the way they were portraying her at Fox. Even more scandalous, you could say. Uh, a, a closeted Hillary supporter as well. The, the two giggle about what a secret circus the office is. But then Kayla saddles up next to Roger Ailes, or Roger Ailes, excuse me. I'm going to say that all day long, Ailes. Roger Ailes' assistant, played by Holland Taylor. You could catch her as the mom in Two and a Half Men, Charlie Sheen's mom. But she plays an assistant, Roger Ailes' assistant in this movie, Holland Taylor, who is also his... I guess you could say uh, processor, and and does Kayla know what she's getting into? Hell no, and it shows that in the movie. The way the film portrays it, she does and she doesn't, I guess. She, she knows instinctively that her beauty opens doors, but she has little idea of what happens when the doors close. And Russell Crowe on the Showtime's Ministries, The Loudest Voice, nailed Roger Ailes' uh, imperious blunt force but may have missed his sense of humor. Lithgow, who is one of the wittiest actors, like I said, uh, one of the wittiest actors alive, you could say, makes Roger Ailes disarmingly human, uh, a despot who's ironic about his ogre-like qualities with a a hidden glimmer, you could say, of vulnerability that only makes him scarier. Uh, Talking to an aspiring young talent like Kayla, like uh, Margot Robbie, he's gentle, fatherly, a good listener, His rap on why the liberal embrace of uh, Black Santa Claus is to enlist is done with surprise dexterity. But of course, he's also playing Kayla, grooming her, if you will. He talks about what he requires from his employees. It's one word, quote-unquote, loyalty. But but that's like a mob code word that means I own you, basically. Uh, Or more precisely, I own you if you want to be on television. And who doesn't? I guess all these girls want to be on television. Uh, It it is one of the most competitive markets in the world today. He tells Kayla to get up and do a spin for him, which is his ritual. He says it's a visual medium. Visual medium, that's what he said. But then he also asks her to hike her skirt a little higher and then a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And then Margot Robbie lets us all feel the, the pressure cooker agony of what, it, what it's like going on inside her. It's an excruciating scene, but the drama of it is, is sustained. It sears the horror of harassment into everybody's heart. And Gretchen Carlson, again played by Nicole Kidman, uh, fired by Fox for trying to do stories that speak uh, to the yearnings of women, uh, which is an athema for Roger, I guess, is also a harassment victim. And she decides to take action when her lawyers come up with the strategy of having her sue Roger personally. That way, the company can back, uh, can't back uh, and come at her. But, but the suit won't stick unless other women come forward. And, and that's the drama of the movie. Will Megan come out and speak out? Will Kayla confront what's happening to her and speak out? Will they prevail over the enabling office pathology of uh, Fox News, representing with grim hilarity by such characters as the the angry soldier uh, Janine Pirro, who's played by Alana Ubach? It's easy to enough to rip a story from the headlines, but not so easy to make it stick. Bombshell has a finely textured, savagely pinpoint... You, you are there that, that the films of Adam McKay, again, he, he made Vice, with, with their fusion of um, topics and borderline uh, attitude, they just don't. I mean, the, the office backbiting, the water cooler ambition and, and treasury, the abusive secrets hovering in the air like smoke from the, the burnt rubber – all of that gives Bombshell the excitement of gossip infused with, with psychodrama. It's suspenseful and deeply satisfying. I mean, to see Roger Ailes' web of power unravel as uh, John Lithgow's performance becomes a tightrope dance of rage and fear is freaking awesome. I mean, this more than a year before the fall of Harvey Weinstein was the real start of the reckoning from deep within the right-wing heart of darkness. I mean, but Bombshell also shows us the cost that this fight uh, extracted. Theron, Kidman, and Robbie each playing a character who feels hideously compromised by the harassment that uh, enchains them create a liberating uh, act of courage under fire. Together, they drop a very big bomb, a bombshell, if you will, and the world is still reeling 
from the fallout. So go see Bombshell. It's available in every theater now. Great movie. Margot Robbie, Nicole Kidman, Charlize Theron, John Lithgow as well. Again, the dad. He, he plays Barney Stinson's dad and How I Met Your Mother. Big-time actor. Go see it. Bombshell out in theaters now. With that being said, let's get to our Friday, our Flashback Friday, if you will, interview of the week. It's Philadelphia Phillies broadcaster Tom McCarthy. We're talking sports. We're talking, I mean, this was a year ago, last year in spring training, so we talk about uh, Bryce Harper. We're talking about Manny Machado, spring training, what it's like to be a broadcaster, what to learn if you're an aspiring broadcaster. I say the word like a lot. It's a lot of fun. Let's talk to Tom McCarthy here on the O Show, but after this quick word, from Tick Pick. I'm so bummed. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's only gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should have used Tick Pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick Pick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, Tick Pick. I thought you said. So first question, I guess this is kind of on everybody's mind, just given that he, I guess, announced that he's going to make his decision at the end of the week. Uh, Bryce Harper, I guess it's down to the Phillies, Dodgers, Giants. Does Bryce Harper sign with the Phillies? Uh, I think that the Phillies are, are obviously giving him an offer that, you know, that is going to, uh, would make anybody happy. Um, I, honestly, I don't know. Uh, I think it's, you know, it all depends on what the other teams come in with. And I, I do know that, you know, whatever offer the Phillies make, just like Machado, it's going to be a fair one. And, you know, the hope is, is that uh, the resolution will come sometime in the next couple of days. And, you know, wherever he goes, he'll get into camp and get himself ready for the season. And do you, do you like the Machado signing? I mean, from both perspectives, like from both his standpoint, the Padres standpoint, do you like the whole 10-year, $300 million concept? Well, I think he's 26 years old. Um, I, I think that he's a, a wonderfully gifted player uh, who's put up numbers that, you know, show that he's one of the top five players in all of Major League Baseball and has been for the last several years. So um, I, I think it's it's unrealistic to think that these guys, that a lot of the players, and I think I'd be the same way, you know, that, that they won't go to where the money is the best for them and the foundation and the, you know, um, and, and the assurances are the best for them financially. Uh, so I think for him, if, you know, it's a beautiful place to play. It's an awesome stadium, and I think he felt most comfortable with what the, the dollar figure was. So, um, you know, I, do I think that he's worth it? I mean, I think that from a perspective standpoint, um, that was his goal, was to be it seemed anyway, just from what I've read, for him to be a, three, to be a $300 million. So, you know, uh, I think it's a good spot for him as long as he's comfortable with it. Yeah, and definitely good for him after all that waiting. Got the contract that he wanted. Living now in probably what's probably the nicest spot it's in the country. It's an awesome place to play. It's an awesome stadium. It's a beautiful place. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful facility. It's a, you know, the weather's awesome. I mean, there's so much to do out there, too. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and, he, got the, and he got the opt-out, which I think is probably important for him to, 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 to sort of look after five years. All right, can I make even more money? Or can I, you know, if I made enough money where now I am going to go to a team that can definitively be a winner every year if the, if the Padres aren't. So I think he's got some, you know, I think he's got some terminology in that contract that sort of helps. Given that it's gone down this past, so Machado signs last week, Harper hopefully signs this week. We're two weeks into spring training already. Do you believe that uh, free agency is going to continue down this path of, like, extremely late signings? I mean, there's still guys like Keuchel and Kimbrell still, still out there. Or do you see um, the MLB doing something about this as it, like, going down this path? Boy, that's a good question. You mean putting a deadline on one guy should right, you know, yeah. have to, to sign? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, maybe they do. I, I, I just think that, you know, the, the way things have gone the last couple of years, um, has it affected those players? I don't know. I mean, Jake Arrieta started the year really well for the Phillies last year, even though he signed, you know, when we were into spring training. So um, could they do it? Sure, they could do it. I, I don't know if they will. I don't know if the agents will allow it. I think the agents are using this, you know, to sort of make sure that their clients do get the best amount of money, which is what they're hired for. Uh, but, yeah, they could do something like that down the road. I, I think it would have to you know, be something that the Players Association would agree with. 
Now this is just like an idea being thrown out there. What would you think of like MLB doing something along the lines? Because like, winter, the winter meetings was always like the big uh, week where all the big uh, uh, guys got signed, all the big contracts went down. Could you see something down the road of like um, there's like the deadline at the end of the winter meetings, everybody's got to sign. So like regardless of like the type of a deal that they want, yeah, do you no, think I, like I, something? I yeah, I think that's too early probably. I mean, I do think that there's some, obviously some spice when that happens, when guys sign during the winter meetings. But I still think that's too early the way the negotiations have gone. Um, you know, it, it, to me, it would probably have to be after the first of the year if they were to do anything like that. You know, maybe close to you know closer to the fifteenth of February, right. you know, before camps really begin. But I, I think the, the winter meetings might be a little too early for that. And so, given like I said, Keuchel's still out there, Kimbrel's still out there. Kimbrel was on the Phillies' radar at some point during this offseason. Could you see him as a potential uh, fit in Philly? Well, I, I think now the way things are, um, the bullpen is in pretty good shape from a Philly standpoint. And depending on what his dollar figure is, I don't know where he fits pr- appropriately. Um, the fact that David Robertson is now here. I think that helps the Phillies and helps the back end of their bullpen. They're really high on a lot of the younger players, and I am too, uh, that could possibly slide into those effective spots in the bullpen. Um, you know, Tommy Hunter is, is, is down with an injury right now, but they still have depth that you know, could, could take, the, you know, take that spot uh, until Tommy is back healthy again. So I don't know. I mean, it, uh, do I think that they need a closer of, of Craig to build? I mean, you never want to say no to somebody like that, but I think financially, um, you know, it all depends on what he's asking for and, and what he's seeking. Uh, I, I haven't, I haven't officially heard any other uh, anything from his camp about what he was looking for, but what I've read is that five or six years, and that that may be a little deep for for a closer in this day and age, but I think the Phillies are in pretty good shape from a, from a bullpen standpoint. Just for Kimbrel's sake, I think you went out and said that he'd, he'd be willing to hold out the entire year if he didn't get the contract for the money that he wanted. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I find that hard to believe. I, I mean, that's just, you know, for, to me, at his age, to give up a year, um, that would be really hard to do. But, I mean, you know, maybe he does, but I, I think it's it would probably be more appropriate for him to sign a one-year deal or a two-year deal than to sit out a whole year. Yeah, I, I really don't understand. I mean, he's only hurting himself, I feel like, sitting out an entire year. Given, I mean, again, a one-year deal, he's going to have to bank on himself to have another really good year. Yeah. I know the yeah. postseason was kind of rough with him in Boston, somehow managed to get through that. But he's still really good, though. Yeah. He's still really good. But, yeah, I, I think, again, it, it, it's it's his life and it's his career. Uh, he'll handle it the way he feels suited, the way he feels appropriate. Uh, but I would think it's hard to sit out, you know, at this point in his career. Uh, okay, so here's the big question. So obviously Bryce Harper on the Phillies' radar. They've offered him at least three hundred million, if not more. It, it, we'll see what Bryce does. But in a few years down the road, South Jersey native, of course, Mike Trout becomes a free agent. A, do you think the Phillies could make a run for Trout if he's not extended by the Angels at that point? And B, does Mike Trout receive over five hundred million dollars? Oh boy, that's a <laughs> that's a heck of a question. Uh, I don't think he gets over $500 million. Um, I could be wrong because the landscape could totally change by the time right. he's a free agent. You know, he's a wonderful player. He's the best player in the game right now. Uh, you know, the Phillies, John Middleton, the Phillies, one of the, the Phillies' majority owner, um, has said that, you know, the, that, that the, the dollars are there for the Phillies to make moves. So I think without knowing or without talking to anybody, I would think that if he's available – uh, that every team will be making an offer for him, including the Phillies. Uh, but I don't think it'll be $500 million. But again, the landscape could change by then. I mean, who would have thought that somebody would make $300 million at this point? For sure, for sure. I mean, Machado, I didn't think Machado was going to get his money. I honestly didn't. And it looks like Harper's no, going to get his money. Yeah, I did. I, I thought he would get it. I just, I just felt like there were teams out there that were interested in him, whether it be the White Sox, the Padres, or even the Phillies. I'm not saying the Phillies would have given him $300 million, but I thought there would be teams out there that would do it. The 10 years is the thing that, that's right. interesting to me. It's just a, but again, he's got the opt out. So for both teams, maybe he does wind up opting out, opting out after five years. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, again, he basically becomes like the rest of them, the guys like A-Rod and Pools. Dare I even say Jacoby Ellsbury. It just doesn't pan out for him in five years. He basically has that option to just stick it out and yep. get his money. So good. And, and, and again, it will only be 20, we'll only be 31 years old. So <laughs> I mean, uh, so that the baseball portion of that, I just want to get into a little bit about your career first. So growing up in broadcasting, was it always the dream to be a broadcaster growing up? Well, it was actually the dream to play baseball yeah. uh, growing up. I went to college to play baseball. Uh, I never really thought I could could do this 
uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I wanted to be in sports in some capacity. And when I stopped playing basketball and baseball in college, um, I wanted to stay within the sports world. And I started writing, actually. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool, being a sports writer. Uh, and I loved it. I thought it was one of the greatest things. But then I, I started broadcasting some of my college's games uh, as the color commentator for football. And I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the, the adrenaline. I enjoyed, it the, I enjoyed the natural high that I was able to get from broadcasting games. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I'll do this a little bit, too. So I just started doing, like, high school games and some college games around the, the Trenton area. And one thing kind of led to another. And I was really fortunate to have some really good bosses uh, at the newspaper that I worked at because they let me do both at the same time. And I was really fortunate to have a lot of people um, who wanted to have games broadcast when I was starting out. So that's where I really got the ditch. But I did not know. I always wanted to be a broadcaster, I think, in the back of my mind if I wasn't going to play. But when I was growing up, I didn't know anybody that had done this. So it was hard for me to say I could do it. I knew an accountant. I knew my dad worked for the phone company. I knew lawyers. I knew guys that owned their own business. But I never knew a broadcaster. So I didn't know I could do it. And I think it wasn't really until I was maybe my first year out of college that I thought, okay, I could probably do this for a living along with sports writing, so let's give it a whirl. Yeah, and did you act, like you obviously said, you didn't really have anybody around you who was a broadcaster, but going up through the ranks, did you have any uh, mentors? Um, well, I was broadcasting, yes. I mean, uh, obviously uh, getting a chance to be in the big leagues at an early age, because I was 32 when I first started, being able to lean on the guys that were at the Phillies, whether it be Andy Musser, Chris Wheeler, or HK, um, those were huge for me because they would help me with a variety of things. Scott Graham would help me with things when it came to the pre- and post-game show. Uh, but I've also been able to befriend a lot of guys in the business, um, from Ernie Harwell, who was unbelievable uh, to me as a spotter and as a stat guy when I was in my mid-20s. And he would show me certain things that I could do to be better as a broadcaster. And you know, he's, he was one of the most incredible people that I, that I ever met in this game. Um, the guy that really helped me get started was a guy by the name of Rich Jablonski, who was a minor league broadcaster in Charleston, South Carolina, who actually gave me a chance to go on the air for the first time. And I used those tapes when I was 25 years old to get my first professional job with the Trenton Thunder. So, you know, that, those guys were the ones that really helped me. And then, you know, Gary Cohen for the Mets was always a huge help for me. Um, and Vince Scully was always a huge help for me when I was just getting started. So, um, you know, those were the guy, kind of the guys that I leaned on. I asked a lot of questions because I, yeah. you know, about how to, how to structure a, a broadcast, how to structure an inning. You know, I asked about home run calls because I'm not a huge believer that you should have a home run call specifically because I think every home run is different. Uh, you know, different things like that. And, like, going into it, obviously everybody kind of wants wants to have their, uh, like, home run call. Did you ever, like, uh, have any, like, ideas before what you eventually went with? Well, no, I mean, not really. I mean, when I was in the minor leagues, you know, the, the commissioner of the Eastern League was John LaVenda, and I used to say goodbye John LaVenda when the ball went over <laughs> the wall. Um, and I did that for a few, like, for, for one season, and I, I was like, and, and I, I only did it, I did it the first time just as a joke more than anything else, just to kind of have some fun. And then I did it a second time, and then all of a sudden somebody wrote a story about it in Baseball America. Uh, so I stayed with it for the entire year. And John got a huge kick out of it that I would use that as my home run call. Uh, but I, I, I grew up using, uh, using Out of Here because most people did that, uh, but nobody did it as well as Harry did it because his voice is so yeah. incredible. Uh, when I sort of transitioned to the big leagues, I, I, didn't want to, I, I couldn't use Out of Here because that was Harry's. Um, so I just I started saying gone and and you know it, to me I really truly believe that that no home run is the same you know some are line drives some are really high fly balls if I know it's gone off the bat I know, you know I'll, I'll my voice will be different but I do think that every home run has a different personality so I try to keep it with that uh, that's how I've always approached it and you mentioned before uh, you uh, broadcasted during college and even in high school. Talk to me a little bit about your experience broadcasting both Princeton football, basketball, and Rutgers football. Well, those were all great. I mean, those were that, that was sort of the natural progression for me. Is uh, I went from doing the College of New Jersey football, which is where I went, to then eventually doing Princeton football. I loved doing Princeton football and basketball. So I did Princeton football for five years, and I did Princeton basketball for nine years. And that, to me, was a, a huge step forward from doing high school games and from doing Division three games. 
but I got to see some really good teams football-wise and some great teams basketball-wise. When I left to go from Princeton to Rutgers, I didn't know if it was the right move because you know Princeton had so many good teams. But as it turned out, it was a, a, the, one of the greatest experiences I had doing Rutgers football because I met you know two of my now best friends, and that was Tim Pernetti, who eventually became the AD at Rutgers, and Chris Carlin, who was our sideline reporter and eventually took over for me when I left. Um, but meeting those two opened so many doors for me personally, but also professionally. Uh, that led to me going to CBS because Tim was a vice president at CBS. Um, so those days, those years, even though they were tough years, I mean, we would go to, to, to facilities like West Virginia and we would lose by six by sixty points. Uh, they weren't the easiest games to do, but it was a great experience. And obviously, it, it's very different. So, major league opposed to like college. I know broadcasting in college, you have to go through like the SIDs, got like bus rides, even in high school. Yep. Well, like, what would you say like is the biggest difference between both like college compared to the pros? Because obviously, there's a lot of differences. Yeah, there, there are a lot of differences. I mean, I, I do think that the the personalities are very different because you're dealing with kids uh, on on one level in college for the most part and adults when it comes to the professional ranks. And I, I don't know if that, that makes any sense or not, but yeah, yeah. You know, the, the kids are still learning how to deal with the media and deal with the broadcasters and are so open-minded to things and, and, and really good to be around from that standpoint. Cause it's the first time they're seeing a lot of it and experience a lot of it. Major league wise, these guys have already experienced a million things already. Uh, so there's a little different way you go about it. Uh, but that's the biggest thing. I mean, I enjoy both. I mean, I, I love doing baseball games, obviously, and I love doing NFL games. Uh, but I really enjoy going to college campuses. I was at Michigan, Michigan State this past weekend, and I thought that was an incredible atmosphere to, to get a chance to broadcast the game. I never, ever take any of that stuff for granted. It's, it's pretty cool. Growing up, just getting into the business, like you said that you wanted to be a player before you ever got into broadcasting. No, that's, that's exactly oh, what I okay. wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough, but I did. I did. I did want to do that. Getting into broadcasting first, did you have any like glimpses where like you just like felt like you said something wrong, or somebody approached you, like just saying like maybe you should try something differently that time? Were there any like stories? Maybe sometime, like maybe at some point you said something wrong, and like a parent approached you, especially in like high school or college. Oh well, yeah, I mean I've always had people. You know, there's always instant criticism. I mean now it's I mean, it's instantaneous when it comes oh, yeah. to. Uh, Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and, and, and the internet as a whole. Uh, I, I've never really had anybody tell me, you know, uh, pronunciations are always a big thing that, you know, parents will say, you know, the name's not pronounced that way, it's pronounced this way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, that's always been, you know, that's always been one of the primary things. Um, I do think grammar is a big thing. You know, we all speak for a living, but we all make mistakes for a living grammatically. Those are some of the, the those are some of the I, I had one one person tell me that I was using the word often incorrectly, that it was often. And I was trying to explain to them that it's either way, it's often or often. And this person was not buying it. Like he was not buying that there's two ways to say it. Um, and I found myself having this conversation with him thinking, Well, what's the big deal? I mean, it, it's it's often or often. It depends on who you are. So now I actually, it's kind of, a, it's kind of something that I do with, uh, from time to time. I'll say it often, or I'll say it often, just to kind of say it uh, both ways, moving, you know, from time to time. But that's really the biggest thing. I mean, uh, players will will ask you about something that may be said on a telecast or a radio broadcast, and you just explain to them what they what what you said, um, and that's pretty much been it, you know. So. I think grammar is one of the big things and pronunciations are the big things. And obviously you have all these years under your belt. Your son, Pat, now broadcasting. Has he had any of uh, experience like this in these instances? No, I don't think so. I mean, he's just, you know, he's sort of, he's still learning uh, and still, you know, going through the same things I went through at his age, although he's far and away better than I was at any point when I was 23 years old. Um, He's better than I was when I was 26 years old. So you know he's he's kind of just learning as he goes through. I mean I'm sure he'll have some things that he you know he'll have the same type of things uh, that he has to deal with, but nothing you know nothing that nothing I, I can think of or that stands out. Yeah, and definitely over time gonna evolve as a broadcaster either way. And was that always his goal, or was he more of the same like you was a player first and got into it? Yeah, I think well he was a college player. Um, he was actually a recruited basketball player in high school, but played baseball in college. 
uh, as a pitcher. I, I don't know if he really knew he wanted to do this until he was maybe a sophomore in college. Uh, he and my other son, who's a senior in college, who plays baseball too. Um, you know, both of them have have done both of them have done it in college. It wasn't really until Pat was maybe a sophomore or junior that he thought I, I could probably do this for a living because he can. I mean, he's 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 pretty good at it. You know, he's getting better with each passing game that he has. So um, I. I don't think he definitively knew he wanted to do this, but I think it's something that he grew into. You talked about your experiences growing up. So once you got to the pros, Phillies, uh, radio, play-by-play, and then you went over to the Trenton Thunder, who were the Red Sox AA affiliate at the time. Tell me a little bit about those experiences. Yeah, so I started out doing the Thunder back in 1994. I was there until the 2000 season. Um, you know, working for minor league baseball, I think, was one of the best things I ever did because I was also an executive in the front office. So I was the PR director for the first four years, and then I was the assistant general manager for the time after that, for the years after that. Um, you know, I, there was a point in 2000 where I had to decide that I wanted to just be a broadcaster. So I had to give up being the assistant GM and really concentrate on my broadcasting. And then several months later is when the Phillies asked me to fill in in September of 2000 um, for Scott Graham, who was who has stepped away to do some uh, football on Fox. So I was able to fill in doing the pre and post game in 2000, and eventually that that sort of migrated into having a full time job with the Phillies in 2001. So uh, being there, I mean, doing doing the Thunder certainly got me to being with the with the Phillies, but also doing a lot of talk shows, yeah. uh, radio talk shows, really helped me too because that I think helps your pace, it helps your interview skills, it helps you sort of understand that the the business of radio. Uh, from a structure standpoint. And then, like, after that, you went over to the Mets for two years. You mentioned Yerry Cohen earlier. How was that experience before jumping back great. over to Philly? Yeah, it was great. You know, so the biggest thing about um, when I was at the Phillies the first time, I would do the pre- and post-game show my first couple of years and then eventually started doing two innings of play-by-play um, after that um, and still do the pre- and post-game show. But the Mets offered me a chance to do the whole game, plus the pre- and post-game show, but do the whole game. And that, to me, was the next step, was getting more reps from a major league standpoint you know, with a major league team. Uh, and I don't think I had any intention of coming back to the Phillies because I, you know, I was in New York, I was doing the Mets games, I really enjoyed it. But when the Phillies asked me to come back to television, that was kind of a different thing because I had really not done baseball on TV. Uh, but it was one of those things that it was hard to turn down. I still had a lot of friends here. I loved the organization. So it was kind of an easy decision to, to come back to Philadelphia after two years in New York. Given you've been doing this for a long time, me getting into broadcasting, aspiring to be a broadcaster, like what's your exact like game prep going into a game? Baseball versus football, too. Well, football is a totally different animal. Football, I start on Monday, and, and you know I'm, I'm basically not done with my preparation until the game starts on Sunday. You know, There's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of information to remember. There's a lot of statistics to remember as well. Um, it's awesome. I, I mean, I think it's it's one of the greatest animals out there is to broadcast football games on, on TV and even radio. But TV, there's even more preparation that goes into it. Um, so there's a lot of lot of note taking. There's a lot of listening. There's a lot of reading. Um, you know, all of that from a baseball standpoint, because you're at it every day. Yeah. The one game kind of filters into the other. But I do a lot of reading. I get up in the morning after I get my daughter to school. Um, I do a lot of reading for a couple hours on not only the Phillies, but also about what's going on around Major League Baseball. And then I eventually get to the ballpark around 2 o'clock, and if I have any information for the players or for the coaches, that's when I get a chance to chat with them. So, uh, you know, baseball is sort of a rhythm thing. You go from one day into the next. Football, because it's a different team, different two teams every week for me, that's that sort of changes the preparation every single every single week. And what is it like bouncing from MLB to NFL? Obviously, with the Phillies, it's kind of like your main mainstay. You have a more better opportunity to chat with some of the guys, build relationships, as opposed to NFL. Like you said, you're bouncing around broadcasting different teams all the time. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's kind of neat. I mean, I, I, I like doing the different teams just because you know it's fresh every single week uh, from an NFL standpoint. Uh, and I, I like the chance to get to meet a lot of these different guys when I go from place to place. You know, baseball, uh, I mean, you, there's such familiarity because you're with them every day. You travel with them. It's a little easier getting to know the players and talking to the players and getting information from the players. Uh, football, everything's kind of set up for you. So that's easy because you get a chance to meet with them in separate, you know, in separate meetings. 
but I enjoy I enjoy both of them for their differences. You know, from a baseball standpoint, I love the rhythm of being with the team and being with an organization on an everyday basis. With football, I love the, the spontaneity of having a different team each week and getting a chance to see different players each week. Now, there are times where I'll do a, the same team a bunch, um, whether it be the Jacksonville Jaguars or the you know the Houston Texans, um, and that's kind of neat when you get familiar with some of the players. It makes the conversation a little easier. With all your experience and obviously a lot of great moments. Uh, oh, here's the question I wanted to ask. Favorite uh, favorite season as uh, the Phillies broadcaster? Well, 2008, 2009 are the two. I mean, obviously because of the World Series trips. Those are those were to me incredible. Uh, just because, you know, the, you want to get to the postseason, you want to win. And the Phillies did that. I mean, 08 was incredible. I mean, it was just an incredible, incredible experience to, to see a World Series championship come to Philadelphia, the parade, everything. So I would say those two seasons, but if you had to really push me for one, I'd say 2008 was the best one. And during the postseason, what was your role? Obviously, like maybe pre- and post-game show, were you on any sort of yeah, call for those? Post-game, yeah, pre- and post-game show in 08, and uh, a lot of interviews with TV stations and stuff like that representing the Phillies. And then 09, uh, I was able, I, I would do a couple of innings of play-by-play on the radio. Uh, during the postseason. 20-plus years of experience. What is your favorite call as a broadcaster? Well, I've got two of them. I mean, it depends on the sport, but my, my one for basketball was Princeton defeating UCLA after UCLA had won the national championship back in Pete Carrill's final season as the head coach of the Princeton Tigers. That, to me, was an incredible experience. Baseball-wise, it's got to be Halliday, Roy Halliday's perfect game right. just because there haven't been many of them that have been, that have been done. Uh, there haven't been many that have been on TV. So to be able to, to do a, to have a perfect game uh, under my belt, but it's just to experience that perfection with Roy Halladay was just an incredible, incredible moment for me. And over the course of time, who's been like your favorite uh, player to interact with? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I always, I always love the 08 guys. I mean, Ryan Howard, Shane Victorino, uh, Jimmy Rollins, you know, all those guys, Jim Tomey before that. Uh, those have been really my favorite guys to really interact with. Because, I mean, we were with them for so long, we kind of grew up with them in the organization. So, you know, getting a chance to see them evolve into world champions, that to me was one of the greatest things. So last question before I let you go, because eventually it's going to stop raining in Florida and you guys will <laughs> be uh, ready to go. So I did this research because this is awesome to me. June 27, 2014, Phillies Braves, you guys are doing the call from center field. Freddie Friedman, it's yeah. a three-run home run. You catch it on fly. It was literally like right in your lap. You end up throwing it back. What was that whole story and experience like? It was like? awesome. It was awesome. I mean, you know, so the glove, it was my first baseman's glove that I had my whole life uh, since eighth grade. And Matt was using it. Matt Stairs was using it for our open. So that's the only reason it was out there. Our producer, Jeff Halleckman, asked us to bring a glove out there. So I had the glove sitting on the table. And we said, wouldn't it be great if a ball came out here? But I had been out there watching BP for several games leading up to that just to see if I can, you know, see the trajectory of the pitches the ball off the bat, that kind of thing. And nothing had been hit out there. And then all of a sudden, this ball, the first inning comes out. I mean, it was just, you want to talk about an adrenaline rush. It was incredible. I mean, it was awesome to do it. Um, you know, I, I apologized to Kyle Kendrick the next day because we were cheering. Yeah, yeah. And it was the three right over. And he, he just started laughing. He thought it was funny. I mean, obviously, he didn't want to give up the home run. But he goes, hey, I shouldn't have given up the pitch. He goes, but that was a heck, that was a heck of a catch. <laughs> and, and was it hard to not get excited? Like, was it hard to just keep rolling with the broadcast and your call uh, while that, the yeah, balls? You know what? It's funny. It, it was, I think it, I was, I was honestly shaking with adrenaline after I made the catch. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. Um yeah, it was. It wasn't hard. It, it just made the night, you know, that much more that that much cooler because it was the first time we ever did anything like that. Uh, we've done it every year since in different spots, and, and we just love being out in the ballpark and enjoying the energy of the crowd. And so, right now, spring training is your schedule a lot lighter than what it's going to be once you guys get back to Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, yeah. My, my schedule's a lot lighter. I mean, Phillies wise, we have all the home games on TV. Uh, I'm here at the complex. So I, I like to get work done on off days. Uh, but even it's a lot of lighter, lot lighter with basketball too. I don't have as many basketball right. games anymore. Uh, just that's my choice is to just kind of back off a little bit. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 kind of neat. I mean, I don't always like to be away from my family for this long a period of time, but it's all part of it. Uh, but yeah, so you know, it's 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 definitely a lot lighter than the regular season. Just quickly back to the home run ball before I let you go. Was it hard to just throw it back? Because obviously everybody wants yeah, to throw it back. I did, and I did get it back. I did get. Oh, it back did you? Yeah. Who did get it? Yeah. So we. Uh, it was. I, 
think it was all part of the shtick of doing it was catching it and throwing it back so it was okay i did get it back though i still have it it's still it's actually sitting in the glove uh on my desk at home uh back in new jersey do you find yourself constantly working on your physique only to find no real results or are you officially fed up with your lack of progress in weight loss and weight gain programs then do I have a solution for you. Mecca Nutrition, build a better you. Choose from a variety of products, including protein, carbohydrates, creatine, pre-workouts, vitamins, and more. Why choose Mecca Nutrition? Mecca Nutrition is a family-owned and operated sports nutrition store located in the heart of Bakersfield, California. Mecca's goal is to provide you, the customer, with the best customer service, nationally recognized products that you know are tried and true, and most most of all, they have the best prices around. If you have any questions or concerns, feel free to contact Mecca Nutrition via social media on Facebook and Instagram at Mecca Nutrition. You can email them or you can call the shop as well at 661-695-9061. Again, that's 661-695-9061. I've been using Mecca Nutrition products for over a year and a half now. And for someone with an extremely high metabolism, I can tell you that these products work. I gained nearly 25 pounds of muscle after using Mecca's select products in the protein and carb aisle with products such as Redcon 1 meal replacement protein and carbs as well as Neil's hookups. So feel free to call the shop or email Mecca's general manager at neil or neil at mechanutritionstore.com rumor has it if you mention mecha nutrition you may come away with an added discount as well but you didn't hear it from me so go check it out if you want to transform your body and get into the best shape possible right now mecha nutrition build a better you nfl wildcard weekend predictions i just want to say this trust offense over defense in the year of 2020, the Patriots, the 49ers, and even the Steelers, the Pittsburgh Steelers of all teams, showed this season even the best defenses only slow down the opposition so much. I mean, the Bills know this well. They, they would be the AFC's champions if, if their money side of the ball hadn't allowed a sluggish Patriots offense to control their biggest game of the year in Foxborough. With that in mind, can they be trusted to stop Deshaun Watson? I picked the Bills to beat the Texans. And I just think the Texans are just that hard luck loser every single year. I just don't think that they, 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 that they can win a wild card game at home. The Texans are an offense first squad, which explodes at unpredictable times. It didn't happen enough in the second half of the season. And it usually happens when Will Fuller is on the field. I mean, the receiver is trending toward a return from his groin injury this week, hopefully. And with the Bills corner, uh, Tredavious White, trying to lock down DeAndre Hopkins, Fuller's status is crucial for Deshaun Watson. And Buffalo's defense can get very creative with its blitz packages without giving up any big plays. That, that, that puts the honest on Watson to find open receivers quickly and to stay patient in long drives. It also makes... The Texans' running backs, Carlos Hyde and Duke Johnson, key figures against a vulnerable Bills rush defense. And for all the progress that second-year quarterback Josh Allen made this season, the Bills are still a very mediocre offense uh, by any measure. They finished 24th in yards per drive and points per drive, while the Texans finished in the top seven in both categories. And in a matchup where a single playoff game win would mean so much to either franchise— the slight edge goes to the home team with the true franchise quarterback. I mean, if J.J. Watt makes another early Saturday afternoon playoff memory, all the better for the Texans. I still choose the Bills over the Texans, but uh, if, you, if you're going to use my bookie, I'd probably go with the Texans. If you're a betting man, go with the Texans by at least three on Sunday. Uh, my prediction for that game would be Texans 28, Bills 24, even though my heart says Buffalo. Uh, the next one would be Titans-Patriots. Again, I think I said this was going to be a wash at the beginning. First time in 11 years. 11 years, just think about that. First time in a decade since another team won the, the division in the AFC. I mean, the Pats still won the AFC this year, but the first time in 11 years that they're playing during Wild Card Weekend. First time in 11 years, they've never had a bye. So Ryan Tannehill was the primary reason that the Tennessee Titans had the NFL's best offense over the second half of the season. That Tannehill and first-year offense coordinator uh, Arthur Smith 
could pilot a unit that's been even more efficient than the Ravens and the Chiefs attacks down the stretch. That is perhaps this season's most pleasant surprise. I mean, the Titans match up well with an aging Patriots team that could have seriously used a week off this past week against the Dolphins. The New England defense's all-out blitzes are no longer confusing opponents, with the Dolphins, again, just showing just how to beat them last week. Ryan Fitzpatrick showed how to do it last week. Tannehill's ability to make accurate throws on the run is a problem for a group that struggles with mobile quarterbacks. I mean, while Derrick Henry's dogged excellence keeps the Titans on the field, setting them up for explosive plays, A.J. Brown, like Devontae Parker last week, has the physical attributes that even Stephon Gilmore can't stop in one-on-one coverage. Could the Patriots force Ryan Tannehill to hold the ball too long with exotic coverages, create a turnover or two to set up Tom Brady to have one last great home playoff performance? Of course they could. I mean, it's the frickin' New England Patriots, Brady and Belichick. As rough as Sunday's loss to the Dolphins was, the team's offensive line has shown improvement over the past few weeks. I mean, Brady's apparent elbow issue, which he insists is not an issue, as a six-time Super Bowl champ would insist, and accuracy uh, are unpredictable. But this is a favorable matchup against the Titans' defense without much juice in the secondary or pass rush, although expected return of quarterback Adoree Jackson helps Tennessee. I mean, the Patriots were a 10-6 and team, given a couple extra wins by their cake schedule, but any 10-6 and team piloted by the, by the greatest week-to-week coach in the NFL history is capable of winning a home playoff game. Ten years after the Ravens helped inspire the first, is the Patriots' dynasty over? Articles to be written, Brady is clearly fighting an uphill battle this postseason. It's easy to imagine him playing well and the Patriots still falling short. Another example of a team built around defense losing to a high-flying offense in Foxborough in January. Again, I'm going to the Patriots. That's my heart. But if you're a betting man, uh, and this is NFL.com saying that they got the Titans over the Patriots, 30-27, to 27. so another game by three. They have the Texans over the Bills by four, Titans over the Patriots by three. If this is true, it would be Ravens-Titans in the divisional round, and it would be Texans and the Chiefs in the divisional round. That would be the final four out of the AFC. Moving on to the NFC, I mean, Saints-Vikings. If this spicy meatball of a game is the biggest mismatch of the, the weekend on paper, on paper, it should be a satisfying wildcard weekend. And while it's understandable that the Vikings' embarrassing Monday night loss to the Packers has eclipsed the memory of their first 14 games, this remains a balanced Minnesota team. I mean, it, it's one of the, the three teams that finished in the top 10 in offense and defense efficiency. According to Football Outsiders, the other two teams have home field advantage. Uh, for the Vikings to pull off a road upset here in New Orleans, however, they will need the versions of wideout Adam Thielen and running back Dalvin Cook that we saw a few months ago, like back in October. The Saints secondary has looked more vulnerable lately, and the Titans were the one team that you could say that recently exposed what should be a softer Saints front after losing starters Marcus Davenport and Sheldon Rankings. I mean, the, the Vikings can pilot a similar, a similar path with a, a strong running game and explosive passing plays. Kirk Cousins is capable of keeping in a shootout. It happens before. I mean, it's happened before, I promise. The bigger issue for Minnesota here is what happens when New Orleans has the ball. The Saints have averaged 36.3 points in their last seven games. That's a lot of freaking points. Their, their combination of unstoppable root combinations created by Sean Payton's playbook and Michael Thomas's ability to make contested uh, catches is unparalleled. Uh, a year after losing a playoff game in the most ex- excruciating way possible, the Saints enter this postseason at 13-3, and looking a lot more like the 2009 world champion Saints than last year's group did late in the 2018 campaign. That should result in another big total on Sunday and a lot of soul-searching for the Vikings about the efficiency of building around Mike Zimmer's defense. If you're a betting man, you're going with New Orleans. I'm going with New Orleans, and so is NFL.com. They have the Saints over the Vikings by a final score of 36-27, to meaning the Saints would then go up against the Green Bay Packers 
in the divisional round. And moving on to the Seahawks and the Eagles, this would uh, this one's going to be interesting. This one's going to be close. NFL.com only has uh, this one, the winner, by two. The Seahawks have lost three of their last four games, most notably last Sunday night against the 49ers for the division. The The Eagles have won four in a row. The Eagles looked at it. They were five and seven. Looked like it was the Cowboys' division to have. Then you know Jason Garrett screws everything up. Eagles win four games in a row. Uh, 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 Scott, what's his name? Boston Scott, three touchdowns against the Giants in Week 17 to win the division. It's worth remembering those trends would likely be reversed if the Seahawks played in one of the worst divisions in NFL history. The Eagles finished 4-6 and six overall outside the cozy confines of the NFC East with the Giants, Cowboys, and Redskins and haven't won a game against a non-division opponent since November 3rd. That streak includes a 17-9 and home loss to the Seahawks in Week 12. Then again, the Seahawks' good fortune has also been a huge part in how they reached this moment. They, they somehow won... 11 games despite outscoring opponents by only seven points this season. The regression that many expected all year happened in December for Seattle and Russell Wilson, along with a cascade of injuries. So much of this matchup could come down to which players that suit up on Sunday best resemble their former selves. And the Seahawks are not expected to get left tackle Dwayne Brown back, which should have the Eagles pass rushers licking their chops. Brandon Graham versus Seahawks backup George Font or right tackle Jermaine Fetty is a problem for Seattle. Seattle's pass protection has been weak all year, requiring Russell Wilson to search for space that isn't there in the pocket to make big throws. He's starting to run more last week, but both Wilson and Marshawn Lynch, who's now back, Beast Mode is back, they don't have the same burst that they did five years ago. Sorry. If the Seahawks are going to win, some newer faces are going to need to show up. I mean, Travis Homer certainly looked like Seattle's best back a week ago against San Francisco. Quentin Jefferson might be the team's best pass rusher, standing unless uh, Jadavian Clowney looks healthier this week. Um, uh, Michael Kendricks, linebacker, is out for the season with a torn ACL. That hurts uh, the Seattle Seahawks one big defensive strength at the second level. The Eagles, meanwhile, will be without Pro Bowl guard Brandon Brooks. The, the status of tight end Zach Ertz and right tackle Lane Johnson may not be known until game time. And rookie running back Miles Sanders, uh, the vulcrum of the offense, you could say, is coming off an ankle injury and did not practice on Wednesday. So Eagles coach Doug Peterson hasn't figured out Pete Carroll's defense in the past failing to score more than 15 points in three meetings. Seattle's offense uh, upside, though, their offensive upside shown in the second half against the 49ers last week, still appears higher. All this uncertainty going into this game between the Eagles and the Seahawks should result in the game decided in the final minutes with two of the most entertaining quarterbacks in football trying to overcome their circumstances. That's where Russell Wilson does his best work. That's why I personally am going with Seattle. They had the better year. So does NFL.com. They have them winning by two, 23-21, which means Seattle would then have another date two and three weeks with the San Francisco 49ers. So it would be 49ers, Seahawks, Packers, Saints, Titans, and the Chief, or the Titans and the Ravens, and then the Chiefs and the Texans as the final eight teams going into divisional round weekend. It should be interesting this week. NFL wildcard weekend kicks off Saturday with the AFC matchups. First matchup is Bills-Texans, then it's Titans-Patriots, and then on Sunday you got Saints-Vikings as the day cap, the matinee on Sunday, and then Sunday, late, late afternoon on Sunday, you got the Eagles and the Seahawks in Philly. So it should be interesting. I'm getting sick. It's getting pretty late. That'll wrap up episode 136 of the O Show presented by Belly Up Sports. Remember to use the promo code OSHOW10. That's capital O-S-H-O-W-10 for $10 off your next order using TickPick.com. You should have used TickPick and Mecha Nutrition. Remember to use the promo code OSHOW20. That's capital O-S-H-O-W-20. If you're into banging weights, eating steaks, and sleeping eights, I got to get myself some new protein. Hit it, Udi.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.